Toronto FC, a team with a new direction after an off-season makeover. It's an all-Canadian affair. Matt working against Morgan. Puts it across the ball. Yes! Marco De That's what we expected from him. To make those rainbows in my mind when I think of you sometime. I want to time with Just the two of us. Welcome to our Friday edition of the Two Solitudes Podcast. Uh, it's not going to necessarily be a, a, a weekly thing. Um, maybe we'll look at a way we can do that down the line. But uh, for now, this is kind of a special edition, Friday edition. We're going to talk about the Canadian national team because it sort of got lost in the TFC news at the start of the week. And we're going to talk about a lot of USL Pro news that broke over the last couple of days and some training news, uh, some academy news in Montreal. Um, Kevin, uh, before we do, I'll ask you how you're doing today. Pretty good. Uh, era of renaissance has happened in Montreal yesterday. Almost a new beginning. You would say maybe back to year one? I don't know. But a new hope, almost, has come into the Impact family with all the big news that happened yesterday, Dwayne. Awesome. So why don't we take a quick little bump and we'll come back and we'll talk about the Montreal news and the USL Pro news through the CSA sanctioning right after this quick break. And welcome back. And uh, as I said, as we said in the in the gamble there, Kevin, there was some big news there. Uh, why don't you just you know, tell us about it, Kevin? What happened? Well, first of all, I'm going to announce a different structure for the impact. Uh, officially, Matt Jordan was named technical director yesterday. Uh, Nick DeSantis' role has been defined. He will be the representative for the impact abroad, be the one trying to scout, the early scout of a player, trying to make contacts uh, overseas and down in the Caribbean and in Central America and South America. He will be traveling a lot, and that is his definition of his new work. So that's going to be away from the cameras, away from all the technical side on the pitch. He won't be seen, he won't be heard. But it will be traveling. So that goes for Nick DeSantis' role. NDS, that's a sweet little gig there. <laughs> if you love traveling, like I do, that's probably the sweetest gig you can try. I, it reminds me a little bit, uh, I'll be cynical briefly, it reminds me a little bit of Mo Johnson's Brazilian vacation a couple years ago. But <laughs> uh, I, well, let's talk about that a little bit. Like This sounds like DeSantis is still the, the point man in, um, in your international discovery signings. Is, was that a, a fair way to assess that? Yeah, that's literally that's what it that's what his job would be. But he's more of a contact guy. He might be not the guy making the decision and trying to to literally broke the deal. He'll probably be more the guy who will be the first one to say, "Hey, look, take a look at that guy." And then eventually, Matt Jordan will be in contact. But he's be the first guy to try to create the networks of contact. So hopefully, he'll grow his network of contact because we all know. That's one of the reasons of the downfall, because we always pick players from the same spot in the last couple of years. I was about to say, so the uh, Italian agents will call uh, 
Jordan, who will then call NDS, who will then fly to watch the player that the agent told them to look at. <laughs> yeah, that seems about likely. So that's the first change of the structure. The other change is there's three more vice presidents. So instead of only having Richard Lejeune, which used to be the president of Tennis Canada back then in the Rogers Cup uh, a decade ago, he had a stint in politics, and since 2011, 2012 has been with the impact. Now he'll be uh, v- executive vice president responsible for the training complex project, because that's another news that we'll talk after this. The, so the, that aspect, the negotiation with the cities and stuff like that, he will be responsible for that. And he's going to be administrator of the new Montreal FC Montreal team, which we'll talk about later as well. So him, you have three more VPs. They'll have different... different uh, type of jobs, which usually a big club has. And that's the whole point of that, those nominations, to have a big club feel. It's to change the, when you're aware of that, I am aware of that. The club might have been in Major League Soccer for the last couple of years, but the infrastructures were not reflecting the status of the club as they should have been. And with those three nominations, they're getting there. They're getting the aura of uh, Montreal Canadiens, of uh, New York Yankees. Not with the result, but at least with the structure of the bureau, the offices. So they have three more. One is Marc Bourassa, who's going to be president of the high direction. Going to have, as well, from marketing and sales. Hugues is going to be the vice president marketing only Vice President of Marketing, before Richard Lejeune was doing all those jobs. So with Hugues at President of Marketing, you have maybe a more direct approach, a more broad-scale approach of the marketing, which is desperately needed. And André Côté, Vice President Strategic Development, which how to grow the club, how to grow the club brand in Montreal, how to grow the market. So those three gentlemen will uh, work hard to try to bring back hope in Montreal. Sounds like, uh, you know, one of the criticisms of the impact before is it was sort of a mom and pops operation with uh, with Joey basically running the show. So it mm-hmm. sounds like maybe they're just expanding it to a, a truer professional organization. Is that a fair assessment? Exactly. I'm not saying that it wasn't professional. It was there. But the sheer size of the job they could have done was limited by the number of people working in that office. And sometimes when you're trying to, uh, when you run after three rabbits, usually you don't catch any. If you focus on one, Individually, they'll be able to focus on their own agenda. And I think progress will be more easily attainable with that structure. So the impact will kill more bunnies now. <laughs> exactly. No more bunnies or foxes at the Saputo Stadium. Okay. Be more killed. Fair enough. Um, all right. That, that's the, uh, you know, that's important stuff. But I, I think the juicy stuff is uh, FC Montreal. So talk a bit about that. Well, before FC Montreal, in the same line of thinking, though, the Montreal Impact have been looking for a couple of years to have their own training center to move away from the CCR, which they shared with other different federations of other sports like athletics, swimming, and stuff like that. Now they're going to have their own training center, training facility, training complex with four pitches, two plastic ones, turf ones, as we've been talking turf, uh, the turf issue a lot on the show, we'll have two grass ones and two pitch ones, so... For all season, all weather, and even one of those pitch will have a dome on it so they can practice all year round on their own facilities. And to me, that's really important to have your, to be able to dictate your own schedule of training and all that. It's really important for a club, in my opinion. I think that people also, from an MLS uh, like player um, acquisition perspective, don't always understand how important the training facilities are. 
one of the, the greatest assets that TFC has is, is the Downsview facility, which any player that comes in will say, right, if you've ever seen training facilities for some of these other teams in MLS, like even big, like Chicago Fire and teams like that, they're crap. They're horrible. They're like, they're like community fields that they get to share. Whereas, you know, TFC, and now it sounds like Montreal will have this as well, uh, they're they're using these world-class facilities that look just like a football club anywhere in the world. And those optics, I think they matter. They especially matter when you're trying to attract DPs. They come in and they see a Mickey Mouse operation. Like, TFC used to train at, um, at, at a little community park on the lake that you could, like, walk their dogs. Or, like, it's supposed to be closed training, but, like, old men would walk their dogs and watch the soccer for a while, you know? Like, that's how they used to train. And it was freezing down there, too. Just, that's, anyway. God, you, I used to you know what it reminds me of, Dwayne, uh, back in the NASL days, in the A-League days, Montreal Impact had more uh, means, more funds, and had a better structure than everybody else, and they were successful because of that. Making the jump to Major League Soccer, they lost that advantage. And with all the announcements that were said yesterday, seems like they're trying to regain that advantage, they're trying to put all the eggs on their basket, all the chance on their side, to sign all those important players, but eventually even develop their own, because... Now, the big announcement between you and me, creation of a USL Pro, not an affiliate, their own USL Pro team, which is going to be a U23 and Academy-filled USL Pro team, which is amazing to me. It's going to be the FC Montreal. Tickets will be free, open to the public. It's just a great news to grow the culture of soccer. Do you know where they're going to play? They're going to play up at that new facility? First year is going to be between the new facility, Statsaputo and the new facility, so you will be able to enjoy the same stadium as the Impact play in for free to watch the FC Montreal and to watch the future of the club and the future of the Canadian men's national team as well because it all goes to the developed pyramid being now complete in Montreal, and you can't say that everywhere. Yeah, it- Look, and first off, uh, hats off for uh, they found another name that uh, works in both languages, so good for them there. Um, that's important in Montreal. It's, it's not that easy. You remember the Montreal Roadrunners? The <laughs> yeah. You'd have to make two names and two banners and two everything else. People do, from a logistical standpoint, that's why the impact. People don't like the name impact, but it's the same word in English and French, correct? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's why it's, why it's there. And you're right, so FC Montreal, because it can be whatever you want it to be, and it works in both languages. So that's that's good from that perspective, but that, that aside, no, it's, uh, look, I had questions about the USL Pro, and we're going to get into this, I think, next, uh, the CSL, CSA's perspective on it. I had some concerns about it when I look at what LA Galaxy did, did 2 did down there, where, look, there's a lot of Americans on LA Galaxy 2, but they were kind of journeymen, they sort of, they're very competitive, they're near the top of the league this year, but... It wasn't a development-focused team. Yeah, it wasn't, it. there are four or five guys that are getting good times there. I don't want to discount that, but you're just not having as many young players sort of playing in that. They're sort of, to me, it looks like the LA Galaxy are sacrificing uh, winning a USL championship over developing players. And I think that speaks, well, one of the major things speaks to is the difference in philosophy between the Canadian and American MLS teams when it comes to their academy kids. The MLS teams in the States are still hyper-focused on maintaining NCAA eligibility for these kids. And so they go out of their way to ensure that they're not getting exposed to an environment where they may lose eligibility. Here in Canada, we will help kids get NCAA scholarships if that's what they want, but it's not the primary focus of our academy programs in this country. And that is one of those unspoken, spoken on this show, I've talked about it before, but it's one of those unspoken um, advantages that the Canadian MLS teams have. So that is, I think, exactly why. 
you're going to see FC Montreal be a predominantly academy, senior academy, U23 team with a sprinkling of impact players that need a little tra- training time. So there will be a few Americans on that team, a few uh, foreign players even. You could even see like a DP coming off an injury or something go down there to play a game or two because that's what it's there for. But the majority, the core of the team. And you know why that is, Kevin? Mm, Developing. Well, do you know why they have to have that happen, Kevin? Oh, because uh, there's a couple of different factors. The no reserve league coming into faction next year. Yes, and also that the CSA is making them do it. Oh, true. <laughs> but yes. the, the, there's a couple of factors to make that announcement even more important for the development in the, in the impact structure. Uh, their U23 program was having a hard time to find a league to play in with the demise of the CSL a couple of years ago. And they never really found a, re- a suitable replacement since. Play a couple of he- games here and there on the USL PDL. They agreed great in the U18, U16 level. But the U23 were uh, having trouble mixing. They were literally just playing the reserve league. And you need a more significant playing time. And with this USL, PD- the USL Pro League, you get basically a full calendar, a full schedule, a competitive structure, competitive level of playing time, and that's going to be immense for development of young players, for the rehabilitation of uh, of injury players, but most of all, it's going to be based as U23 almost entirely. There'll be, like you said, the here and there uh, reserve player getting a couple minutes, but basically it's meant to develop and to assess the development of the young players, which is, I never thought I'd see this this year. I knew eventually... We will see a training facility, but combined with the USL Pro team, it really mind-boggled me yesterday. I was like, wow, they took a big step between just being one of the team and being one of the lead, the lead leaders of that league, eventually. Yeah, and look, the, for all of the struggles that the Canadian MLS teams have had on the field in the MLS level, they, they have excelled at the, uh, at the academy level. The academy teams, the academy prospects that they have uh, put forward have been top-notch um, Vancouver had the established program going in, and uh, we're seeing it with the uh, the minutes that the Montreal kids are getting right now. TFC actually has the most all-time minutes of homegrown players in MLS at this moment. That's, that's partly that to do with how bad they were in the past, but it's also partly to do with them producing some quality players that could play for any team. Um, this negotiations, Kevin, to, to to have the USL Pro. Uh, sides fully singly operated USL pro sides has been ongoing for a while between the three MLS teams in Canada and uh, and the CSA and I think this is where we'll segue into this talk here um there was resistance at the CSA level to just carte blanche let them do this uh, because they were fearful that basically these teams would become like I described with the LA Galaxy 2 model, that they would have a few kids sprinkled in, at the very, very top kids, but they wouldn't allow kids to grow and become elite because they just wouldn't get the chance. They would cast them aside and bring in kind of journeymen, guys that were, you know, played in MLS a few games here and there to fill up the roster so that they could have a competitive team that maybe they could sell a few tickets, maybe they could sell a few more jerseys, they could produce, you know, another three or 4,000 fans per game and, and make a little bit more revenue, and it wouldn't be a development tool. Instead, it would just be an extension of the brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, the CSA feared that, so they weren't, you know, not that necessarily that's what the three teams would have done. However, the CSA had every right to fear that based on past history. The first thing that the Whitecaps did when they got into MLS is start fighting to remove the Canadian quotas. Um, so I don't know why you would then trust the, the Whitecaps, for instance, to, you know, just give Canadian kids a chance if they if they didn't have to with a USL Pro team, and we'll talk a bit about uh, Vancouver in a bit. 
But um, just the fact that they're not charging for the attendance for those games proves that the end goal is not to make money, but is literally for the development. And just that, with the Canadian quotas in the team, will, I think, benefit Canada in the long run, will benefit every single player that has 20 more opportunities of professional playing in Canada, and that cannot be discounted. Yeah, and I think the fact they're not charging also points to the fact that uh, that they're not overly concerned with the scoreboard. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they're going to want to be you know losing five nil. Uh, that's not development either. As I talked to Mike Stefano here in Toronto, the academy coach, I asked him about development versus uh, results, and he says point blank that at that level of development, results are part of the package that you need to teach them to, to learn how to win. So it's not that they're not going to be out there trying; it's just that they're going to not sacrifice. Um, performance goals for uh, result goals, right? That's the difference. So not charging them is another layer of that. No one can complain. If you go and watch the Impact play an artistically pleasing 2-1 loss to an older USL team, you're not going to walk away feeling cheated if you didn't pay a penny, right? You're going to understand what you're there for. Exactly. And you're going to... It's going to bring a different type of environment as well. It's going to create a different type of football fan and football culture, which is going to be ba- it's going to really look like the old NSL family more oriented type of product that will that will cater to that type of audience because that type of audience has been lost with the MS, MLS move, and it will literally have the same feeling of the old NSL days with that the FC Montreal. We're playing against the old foes too, the the Rochester Rhinos and the. All those teams, and you'll get the MLS big team to ca- to cater to the actual soccer fans. So you'll have all available, different type of level of product for the actual soccer fans. And it's going to create, in 20 years, even more soccer fanatics than we have today. And, it, you know, not that we're going to focus on the, on the supporters aspect of this, the supporters culture aspect of this, but it will help grow that too, because mm-hmm. inevitably I suggest that there will be you're right that it'll be 80% families there, but there'll be 20% of the fans that are going to be attracted to this are going to be your hardest of the hardcore. Yeah. And uh, they will probably have a little bit longer rope in a sort of sectioned off like, like a zoo area <laughs> of the stands. And I've been in those sections, so I'm not making fun. I'm, I'm sharing your pain. Uh, but I suspect that there'll be a chance for the, those groups to grow a little bit as well, uh, because they're just going to be more accessible to people. They're going to seem more accessible. So that's a good thing too. But uh, uh Moving back onto the pitch stuff, uh, just for those that haven't read the report, and it's up on CSN, I, I, I hesitate to say they were broke. I just was the first person to actually ask the CSA for the information, and they, they point blank just gave it to me. So this isn't me scooping something. This is me just reporting what the CSA has, has officially uh, told me is happening. Uh, this is what's happening. There's going to be a quota on these USL pro teams that are sanctioned in Canada. First off, they're not going to sanction... Let me take a step further back further. The reason that this is an issue, for those who don't know, is because there's a policy within the CSA that they will not sanction any additional teams at the third level or lower, and they consider the NASL the second level, the MLS the first level, and USL Pro the third level. The third level or lower, they will not sanction new teams because they want uh, entrepreneurs, soccer entrepreneurs in this country, to focus on building Canadian solutions. And that's why... You know, League One is existing, and that's the type of thing they want to promote rather than just fly-by-night teams that play in American leagues and work or don't work, right? Mm -hmm. So there's that policy out there. So they had to work with the MLS teams to make an extension, sorry, to waive that, to, to exclude those three teams from that in some way that was workable for all parties. So this is the solution they came to. First off, that only the MLS teams are going to be allowed to have USL pro teams. This is not an open door for 
Joe Blow in Halifax to start a USL pro team. If Joe Blow in Halifax has a lot of money and wants to spend it on soccer, he should create a maritime league, right? True. Second off, they're going to review this annually to make sure that the teams are are going along with the spirit of what's happening here, that they understand that this is a development tool and it should because they are sanctioned by the CSA that they have a ethical uh, requirement, in my mind, to also... Uh, because it's a favor of the CSA to let them play in American leagues, I think that they do have an ethical requirement to also help the CSA by producing Canadian talent and focusing on Canadian talent and maintaining the Canadian and you know expand the game locally and and nationally in this country. So they they're going to review it annually to make sure they're uh, they're holding up the spirit of that. The two the bread and butter of it is this: the roster must be 50% Canadian, and importantly, with their definition of Canadian is someone eligible for the Canadian national team. So if Owen Hargraves wants to come out of retirement, it's not going to be considered Canadian in this uh, in this league, uh, even though his passport will say that he's free to play. But he's going to be an import uh, by the CSA when they're counting up the rules. And the most interesting rule that the CSA has imposed on this is that six of the 11 starters in each game must be Canadian as well, and that is a very interesting provision that sort of forces these teams to maintain a development focus. And to have at least, at the minimum, three players playing 90 minutes in every single game. And that's at the very least, if three of them get subbed out. That's a pretty good news. A lot more than we have right now. Yeah, it's going to absolutely expand the playing top front. The reason that they're maintaining this, and the reason they have all these rules for those that are asking, and basically the reaction that I've seen since I reported this story is about 80% in favor, 80 or 90% in favor of these quotas. Um, then again, I have a bit of a skewed sample. When the people that follow me and that talk to me generally are people that have an interest in development issues in Canada and an interest in Canadian soccer, so I appreciate that skewed. I have seen some dissenting voices that feel that the CAS, CSA shouldn't be dictating who these teams are playing for and that Canadians should earn their time. It's the typical stuff. If you follow stuff in this country forever, you understand the resistance to quotas sometimes and you know, those fights are worthless trying to fight because people won't hear the other side of it anyway. Um, however, there is some dissenting voice out there. But again, I come back to that ethical, to me, it's an ethical requirement. They, the CSA could say no. Like, this is what people don't understand. Teams, although they seem to have more power, they don't. The CSA actually has the power to say, no, we are not going to sanction you. In fact, they could not sanction the MLS teams if they didn't want to. So it is a favor. It is an extension of that. Uh, that they are allowing these teams to operate in, a, in an environment in MLS that allows them to make a lot of money. So they, I think that they do owe them this little thing. And more to the point, I don't think the MLS teams, if they really think about their own interests, should be wanting to play a bunch of journeyman Americans out there. Why, like, why? You win a couple more games in USL Pro, what the hell does that get you? doesn't give you anything at all. Yeah, and no one's going to... Like, I mean, even at the best interest, you're going to have three or 4,000 of these games. That's a very top end. Like, no one's going to notice. It's not going to make a major impact. This is lower-level soccer for us geeks. I'm going to love it. I'm going to look absolutely stoked to go <laughs> cover this next year, but but I'm not normal. <laughs> yeah, we're not normal. At any rate, uh, let's uh, finish the conversation with, we talked about Montreal, and Montreal is, is, looks like, well, I, they have to get approval from USL Pro, but that's a rubber stamp. Um, the... Other two cities, the uh, Toronto and uh, Vancouver. Vancouver has long been um, upfront about its desire to start a team. They are uh, trying to get a team. I think it's, it's the West Van or New New Van, somewhere in their suburbs. Sorry, I'm not my familiarity with Vancouver suburbs isn't as good as it should be. But uh, at any rate, they're working out there to try and get a stadium cleared. Uh, there's a lot of resistance in the local level there. I, I was reading a lot of it last night. Um, 
there's the typical NIMBY kind of resistance to to getting this refurbished stadium going and having the, the soccer team play in there. There's also uh, resistance among local the local baseball community in this community. They uh, they feel that the Whitecaps are going to push their sport out. So these public meetings have been, have been pretty hostile, have been pretty vocally opposed to this. Um, they take that with a grain of salt in any of these situations because the people that drag their ass out to community meetings are generally angry cane waivers anyway. <laughs> Um, however, there is some resistance to the refurbished stadium that the Whitecaps want to put their USL Pro team in. If they can't get the stadium uh, plan approved, then I, it's going to be tight for them to try and figure out a place to play next year. So there is a potential that the USL Pro side for the Whitecaps may be delayed to 2016. There's a public meeting where the vote's going to be taking place. Sorry, sorry, I think it's a council meeting, pardon me, on the 15th of September, which coincidentally is the deadline for application for USL Pro, although I think USL Pro would work with the Canadian teams if they need a little extension on that. Um, there is a meeting where the vote will happen on the 15th of September, so we'll know whether that stadium plan is going to go ahead fairly quickly. But I think the CSA is going to have a little bit more trouble with the type of project that Vancouver is trying to build just because it's going to be a team on its own. It's not going to be part of the same facilities and the same almost development pyramid. It's going to be close to Vancouver, but it's not in Vancouver proper. It's not going to be part of the actual day-to-day operation of the team. And I think that's going to be one of the of the obstacles, having that uh, project approved by the CSA eventually. Well, they, they will have sanction it, but they'll be required to follow the same quotas. And I, the, most of the resistance I've seen from it are from Whitecaps fans. because, And the Whitecaps fans, this is a complicated issue that I'm not going to get into too much, but the Whitecaps have a slightly, as we talked about with Leonard Dizzy, we asked him these questions, they have a slightly different philosophy and understanding of the Canadian issues and the quota issues. They're, not, they're, less, they're more resistant to them. Um, they feel that they shouldn't have those kind of... Um, uh, restrictions placed upon them. Now, I don't know what the Whitecaps' positions are on the USL Pro uh, quota, so I'm not going to comment on beyond that, and uh, I'm not going to comment on the overall philosophical position of Vancouver fans or the team any further than what I said, other than to say that they have a slightly different uh, expectation and understanding at times on these issues based on my experience uh, dealing with them over the last eight years. That's where I'm coming from at any rate. And yes, there are a couple independent owners attached to this that are, the Whitecaps are very much involved, but they're not the only people involved, so there might be a slightly different mandate uh, for a Vancouver team than, than there would be in, in Montreal, certainly. And uh, I'll talk about Toronto in a minute. I think the same thing would apply in Toronto, where they may be a little bit more interested in, in making it for profit and a little more interested in um, winning. So that might be why they might fight against the quotas a little bit. But uh, CSA ain't going to sanction them if they uh, they do. So uh, they're going to have to figure out a way to make money and win uh, working within the rules that CSA has placed on them. So at any rate, we can talk about that more when it happens. The, right now, the first battle they have to fight is to get that stadium uh, up and running and find a place to play next year. And in Toronto, what's the project that it's uh, probably building behind the scenes for the USL? Yeah, I just reported this just an hour before I, this broadcast is being taped, I put it up. It's on TSN right now. Um, they want to move away from the Wilmington affiliate at this point in time. Uh, nothing against Wilmington. Uh, they've been good to them this year. They're happy with, uh, with the, what things have happened there. Uh, but they've been meeting with uh, Ontario Soccer Association officials over the past couple weeks, and particularly last week, to try and hammer out the details to, to get a team up for next year. That is very much their intention. If not next year, then certainly by 2016, TFC will be running a USL Pro team. Um, the 
complication in the stadium. There isn't a small-scale stadium available for use in Toronto or the GTA right now. Uh, really, we were bearing about on, on Twitter last night. There's lots of comp- there's a couple places that might work. Varsity Stadium at UOT, but UOT has traditionally been resistant towards third parties coming in. York University, uh, they have a little stadium up there, which is a gorgeous little place. That again, same problem that you're going to have to go through the red tape of a university to get to get approval there. Um, obviously, the Lamport Stadium is falling apart. They would have to do a major renovation there. Uh, BMO Field, uh, MLC doesn't own BMO Field outright, so they'd have to negotiate with the city to, to use that, and it might be expensive, cost prohibitive. Uh, a lot of people look at Downsview, but Downsview doesn't have a stadium. For those that haven't been up, they have a beautiful field. It's a stunning field. It might be the best field in this country. However, there's no stands around it, and basically they might shoot you if you step on the grass there. So I don't know if they want a 1,000 or so fans around there. <laughs> they also only have one toilet in the entire facility available for the people. And if you're drinking a lot of beer, I don't know whether one toilet's going to work. Yeah, that might be a problem. Especially if you don't want people on the grass. You know? <laughs> That's another discussion. TMI there, however. <laughs> um, yeah, so they're, they're working with the Interior Soccer Association. The solution that they've come up with is they, the Interior Soccer Association at the Interior Soccer Center, which is in Vaughan, uh, former Woodbridge, way on the northwest suburban part of the city, um, it, it's difficult to get up. Martin Grove and uh, Steeles, basically. It's uh, a little stadium there that's been there for years. Now, it's you, we were talking about Generation 1 and 2 field turf last night. I was at that stadium a couple nights ago. It's Generation Minus 3 field turf out there right now. <laughs> I can't even describe it. It's spectacularly bad. But at any rate, so they're renovating this entire stadium. And this is a project that is 98% a go right now. It, it's probably going to happen. But the shovel's not quite in the ground. So... If this renovation happens, and by all accounts it probably will, it's probably not going to get going till October, and they expect to finish it next June. That creates a complication with TFC trying to start in 2015, and that you'd be three months into your USL season. So how do you solve that? Obviously, you can work with USL to schedule a lot of road dates off the top. That's one way to do it. But you're still going to have to play some home games. You can't have a three-month road trip. That's not going to work on any logistical level. Um, there's what solutions they might look to York for a short term one. Uh, they could even play some maybe closed door stuff up at uh, at Downsview. I, I think they'd like to include the community because one of the and I'll talk about this in a minute. One of the uh, purposes of working with the OSA is to build some bridges that have been burnt in the past. Uh, other than that, you're looking at Guelph maybe like out of the city Montgomery and, or something. Yeah, I don't think they want to do that. But uh, London, like, I mean, there's okay. places in the province where you could go that would have stadiums that would be suitable, but they wouldn't be accessible to your typical TFC fan. Um, okay, so the, I, I mentioned the OSA building bridges one. They, they want to work with the OSA, to, and the OSA would actually be the game day operations people that were running this. They would operate the club on a day-to-day basis. Uh, you know, obviously, be TFC staff and TFC training mechanisms and all that sort of jazz would be going there. But in terms of marketing and game day promotion and game day operations, it would be the OSA that would run it for TFC. Uh, and they would do that again. It would be, it's an all branch for to the OSA for past transgressions that the OSA either has had happen to them by TFC Academy or feels this, feels this had happened. Um, one of the things that they're going to do, uh, they haven't talked about letting everyone in free like in Montreal. Amazing to be back there. <laughs> uh, but they they have uh, talked about letting any card, any registered youth soccer player in the province come in for free. 
uh, to, to make it truly an extension of, you know, the very pinnacle of the of the Ontario Pyramid in a way, and as such, make it the the club of every club in in the province is what the idea would be with that. So they'd let the the kids come in free, and they'd probably extend that to the families or whatever. I expect when push comes to shove, if you're paying something to get in there, it wouldn't be very much. Um, and I don't expect like for either Montreal or, or Toronto. What I'm hearing in Toronto, what I'm hearing hurt from Montreal, big crowds is necessarily their focus here. It's development, it's giving a place for their young kids to play, and you know, extending that a little bit. It's also important to get their you know, injury, coming off injury type people uh, from MLS rosters or their borderline MLS players, a little place to play too. But the majority of the players, based on the quotas and based on their desire in both Montreal and Toronto, I think, are going to be young Canadians. And I think that that's a wonderful thing. I agree totally. And it's a great day in Canadian soccer history as uh, one of the three pyramids is complete and either one's on its way. So it's just great news. All right, we'll keep an eye on that Vancouver situation. Maybe we'll get a guest in to talk a bit about that and maybe explore some of the philosophical differences that might exist out there on a later show. But on that note, uh, Kevin, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and we'll, uh, we'll discuss our expectations for the Canada-friendly against Jamaica. And yes, the wait is finally over. Teespring.com slash Two Solitudes Podcast. You can get the official Unattached FC shirt. Yes, you can finally represent the most consistent feeder club of the Canadian men's national team history. You can finally walk around the street and be able to walk around with pride for the one of the most famous club in Canadian history. Yes, the wait is over. Teespring.com slash Two Solitudes Podcast. $25 well invested in the future of Canadian broadcasting in the world of soccer. While supplies last... Shipping not included. And we're back. And uh, we start the uh, the new cycle. The 2018 cycle at home starts on Tuesday for the Canadian men's national team. Uh, we all know the history of the past. Uh, it's time to stop talking about the past, although I suspect that we're always going to talk about the past because it's just such in our face. But at any rate, we're going to move on. And we have a very interesting roster that has been named for the Jamaican friendly here in Toronto. When I first saw Kevin, um, my thought was that they they want to win. They want to make a statement in front of what fans remain to say, we're in, in this series, we want to be competitive, we're not just dicking around. We know World Cup qualifying starts in a year, we want to be serious. And that was my first, first thought, is that they were going to try and win this game. Which nomination in that roster surprised you the most? I would say... I don't know if it surprised me, um, but I was a little bit surprised considering how little he's played that D-Row did get the call. Uh, I think it is pretty clear right now that Dwayne De Rosario is likely done at the end of this year. Uh, he was left off the roster again uh, for the trip to Philadelphia. Uh, didn't even make the bench. He was left home in Toronto. Um, you know, at the price he's getting, there's no way he's, he's coming back on anything less than a minimum contract in MLS. Uh, maybe he'll try and hook on with an NASL team or something for marketing purposes, but he's a guy that really is at the end. Um, so for him, them to reach out and give him this cap, I, I don't mind it. Uh, for what all the criticism people, and some of it's right criticism people have of D-Row, uh, especially his time in TFC, he really always did take the call for Canada. I mean, yes, you can point to a couple times where his MLS career took priority like any other reasonable player anywhere in the world. <laughs> That's not abnormal to people. 
But for the most part, he always took the call. In fact, he was dead there at some camps where he was the only star that was there. He's been around some, in the post-8-1. He was one of the players that maintained his loyalty to the program. Yeah, there were some rumors about what happened around the Dale Mitchell time and all that sort of stuff, and, and D-Rose is always going to be a divisive character, but to give him one final cap at home, I don't think is the worst idea because overall his contribution to the Canadian national men's team has been more positive than negative. So I'm going to leave it at that. But I was a little surprised that they'd be that sentimental. Mm-hmm. Bernier as well. Um, I, I don't know. You're closer to the situation. I don't know how much Patrice has left in him either. Uh, maybe a bit more than Dero, but both of them are certainly near the end. No, fair. But it really, I have the romantic side of that uh, cap as well. It's its 50th cap. And it has a lot of it feels like a changing of the guards. It feels like it, that game is a passing of the torch. Have the old generation give it to the young. Because there's young players like uh, Jérémy Gagnon-Lapare, defenders for the impact, which is the brand new signee, but still hasn't really played a lot in the Major League Soccer yet. And it seems like it's really a passing of the torch of that game. Yeah, and uh, absolutely. I think that in the, um, the November game uh, against Panama and Panama, I, that is going to be, to me, pretty close to what the first team lineup is going to be uh, moving forward into the Gold Cup year next year. Into you know, World Cup qualifying will start next fall. About a 13 to 14 months from now, we'll have to play its first truly competitive World Cup game. Mm-hmm. It'll be against an island. Um, Canada, even at, at the point that they're at now, should still be favorite. Uh, but, you know, it's important... Based on what we've seen over the last year and based on how we ended that campaign, I don't think we can take anything for granted. And the one thing I think, as we've said many times before, so long as Canada is competitive in the semifinal round, I'm going to be okay with the 2018 qualifying. I just want them to be competitive. I want them to not embarrass themselves. But the one thing that would be horrific is that they went out in the second round. Now, all that said, we're assuming that the CONCACAF is going to stay with the same format. And mm-hmm. I think that's a safe assumption because there's so much politics in CONCACAF that they, when they try and switch it, they get shot down by Mexico and the U.S. who like the format as it is. And they don't want to play any more games against the islands than they have to. So anything that they try and do, that won't. But at any rate, Canada will be in that second round if it stays the same. And, and they're going to need to win that group. They're going to need to be perfect. And we're going to need to develop some cohesion with this group. And uh, we're going to need to get those kids moving forward. And I think that uh, I'm excited to see that happen. I'm excited to move on. Um, I don't think we're bad as people think. And I hope that on Tuesday, and I think it is important on Tuesday to be competitive and get a win out there. And I think that the win would do so much for the optics and the confidence of this program. No, I agree. But there's, I heard a lot of criticism, some criticism with the roster saying that young players are being left out to give the, uh, not the old generation, but the the older generation, a a farewell sending. Do you think that it's warranted? Do you think that they deserve criticism for those moves? I I don't think criticism. They don't deserve criticism. I think they deserve criticism for things that they've done in the past, the the way that they didn't show up at the end. But by and large, I look at, you have to look at individual call-ups individual and individual players individually. And these guys have all accepted this call now. Uh, it's not necessarily the easiest thing to drag your ass over to Canada in the middle of your season. It's not necessarily uh, always the right thing to, to, even if you're not playing, to leave your club situation. So they've taken this call, and, and I think it's time in a general way to move on, um, fans and players alike. And uh, continuing to call people out for the past is not helpful to anyone. Um, if they're showing up and they're wearing red, and if you want to be a supporter, then support. Good point.
So with so, the game being on a Tuesday on a weekdays, with work and school restarted, uh, what kind of attendance do you expect to be there on Tuesday? I've heard that it's struggling to hit the 10,000 mark. I think you're going to see a lot of empty seats. I think you're going to see a lot of green in the seats, too, because as anyone who knows Toronto knows, that there is a huge Jamaican community here. Uh, and the last two times they played Jamaica at Beemo Field, there have been a significant amount of Jamaicans in the crowd. Uh, there will be people that criticize that, and I get that. And I, I'm, I'm, trust me, I've stood in the crowd, been frustrated about that, that very situation many, many times in the past. Um, but I'm willing to give the CSA a bit of a pass for a game like this. Um, economically speaking, playing it in a place where it's a meaningless game, it's, it is a friendly. Uh, we talked about the importance of, for confidence and stuff, but it's still a friendly. So they need to play it in a place where they can draw a little bit so they can recoup some of their costs. And I think putting it in a place where you're guaranteed to have a certain amount of Jamaicans come is smart, if not, if a little cynical. Um, that said, on a Tuesday night when your people are watching this on TV, I can almost guarantee I can predict what the, uh, the Twitter feed is going to say now. It's going to talk about the stupid Toronto, and there's 90% of that stand, maybe 98% is going to be cheering for Jamaica. That's not going to be true. It's going to be uh, probably 60-40 or 70-30 Canadian percentages in there, but the Jamaican fans are going to be louder because the Canadian section is, from what I know, and I know I know Jamie quite well, Jamie McLeod, the president of the Voyagers, uh, and I, I know that he sold a significant amount of tickets, but it's nowhere near what he sold for World Cup qualifying. So you'll probably see a couple hundred Canadian, diehard Canadian fans that will be singing and trying to hold, you know, trying to stand on guard for the, uh, and there will be probably a couple thousand uh, Jamaicans uh, that will be there uh, enjoying their heritage. So that's what it's going to look like. I suspect 10,000 or so. Uh, I would... That would be uh, a lot, for in my opinion, for just a friendly game against, like, because between you and me, marketing-wise, the last week with all the Toronto, uh, the big bloody mess, bloody big mess, you, it's like it's been uh, forgotten about and covered in the media. Yeah, it's also Tuesday, and look, as we said during the U20s, you can't stress enough how burnt out the market is, and yes, that is a good argument to hold, to hold this game somewhere else, I'll agree with you folks, but uh, they're not. Um, and Montreal hasn't honestly proven to be that much easier of a sell either. So, and they don't want to play on turf, and then we're getting into a whole other discussion that I really don't want to get into anymore right now. But <laughs> right, we're sick of talking about turf. Yeah, uh, look, I agree that right now it would be the time to maybe throw this game at Edmonton or something. But all these markets, because of the U20s, are a little burnt out, uh, and you can only tap the well so many times. And uh, I think that you know. You have the TFC game coming up on Saturday, and you've had that would be two weeks in a row that there's been a TFC game coming off of uh, a month where you had a couple Canada games in there, and another, you know, like there's been a lot of soccer in this in this market, especially looking. Christ, I was going. I felt like I might as well put an apartment at BMO Field in July. I was there so often, you know, like it. <laughs> even at myself, I'm very excited about the Canadian game. Don't get me wrong, because I'm always excited to go for the Canadian national team games. But it is a lot of soccer. I'm gonna have to you know, motivate myself majorly to go watch CFC tomorrow, but uh, it, it's a lot to get down there, and I know Crimea River, if you're in an area of the country that doesn't get as access that we do, but it's still, fatigue is still a, a factor. <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, for at least in Montreal is where we get Canada games, so I don't have that same fatigue. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I know that the rest of the country is going to be just really upset, really sad. Pray for Dwayne. <laughs> I imagine the soccer fan in Moncton be like, "Yeah, cry me a river. You have a lot of game. I haven't watched a game in years." Well, like not true. Seven hundred national team game I've watched in, watched in my backyard in the last two years. Yes, I get that, but it's okay. Moving on. Um, I'm interested. The only thing I'm really interested to see is the young Montreal guys. I don't get to see them as much up here, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, what what should we expect from the, the young crew of uh, Impact Academy folk? Jeremy Gagnon Lapare has a. He's really fast and has a type of a flair, almost has a Maxim Tissot has, but a little bit more. Uh, not uh, trustworthy, but a little bit more solid defensively than Tiso is. But Tiso has a bit more offensive flair. W has been doing a lot of strive this season, been becoming more reliable defensively, been losing a little bit of his, not losing, but did focus more on his defensive side of the game, and it really helped him a lot this season, especially on the Canadian level. He's been giving responsibilities on the national team level that he doesn't have in Montreal, and it's good for him. Sometimes you need more of a a different type of feeling, a vibe, or confidence when you play. And that's when he gets when he go puts on the red shirt instead of the blue shirt. So when you get different type of responsibilities or role, you learn twice as much. And that's one of the areas I like with him with the Canadian men's national team. One of the things I do like about this new generation, the, the under-23 generation of the Canadian national team is they played a lot together because of just the situation uh, that exists in there. So I think that's going to bode well for the 23 for the Olympic qualifying. But more to that, they, they, they seem more unified. They seem more excited to, to be internationals. Um, and in the past, it seemed like almost like an obligation, especially like these guys are playing in Canada now, so it's less of a burden for them. Back in the past, you had to drag your ass from wherever, like the League One or whatever in England. You had to get back, and you were running risk of that, and there was just a lot of stress around the, your club situation and all that, whereas these young kids, they seem eager to be there. And although they're not yet performing, and they're not yet truly internationals, even though they have that designation, um, I am happy and excited to see them be excited to, to play for Canada, because that's bluntly half the battle in this country yeah. sometimes, is that we have players out there that want to sacrifice for it. And I think it's the whole new internet and TV generation, because 40 years ago, or 30 years ago, when the young players were growing up, and when the generation that's about 30-something years old now were growing up, they were not having that much soccer on TV or everywhere. So yes, there were players, there were uh, athletes playing the soccer, but they were not soccer fans necessarily. They were not watching all those great European games and seeing players play for their country with pride. Now, with all the TV generation and the internet generation, they've been watching soccer for years and years. They've been literally wanting to play for their country or seeing players play with pride for their countries, and they want to do the same. And we've seen that energy, that enthusiasm from those players. And I think it's because of just more soccer has been shown. Yeah, FIFA too, the video game. Yeah. I mean. It, it's absolutely. I mean, they, would, they talk about that all the. I actually was reading an interesting article in an English publication talking about the new generation of English players and how they're more aggressive and willing to try things and try more flair games. It also lamented the fact they were less likely to be defensive minded. But however, <laughs> uh, they pinpointed the, the FIFA games to be a major part of that. That that's just what they're growing up with and how they expose the sport. Um, you know, last thought. Uh, a couple months ago, there was a quote from Daniel Henry. Uh, Daniel Henry, and they asked him what his dream was. And he didn't, you know, although he, he didn't mention winning the Champions League, he didn't mention um, going to, Euro- to a big European club, although he did aspire to, to taking his career as far as it could. His ultimate career dream, he said at that time, was to lead Canada to a World Cup. And I think that there's 
math where a young Canadian center back like Daniel Henry uh, would not have listed that as his dream. It would have been to, you know, be a squad player for Fulham. A decade ago, I would not expect any players of saying that in Canada. Now, that's what we were talking about. It's that new enthusiasm, that new confidence, and that new no, not saying no and not taking no for an answer. Saying like, you know what, we might not be the best team, we might be 120-something in the world, but our goal is still to make the World Cup one day, to be top 32. And you know what, they have a chance of doing it. They, they, they keep thinking that way. And now, Kevin, I have my, now I'm significantly pumped up for Tuesday. Kevin, we're going to go to Russia. We're going to Russia. We're going to Russia. Might Maybe be I'm just as a supporter, but we're going to Russia. <laughs> On a tourist visa. <laughs> All right, no. We're going to go to Russia, people. Believe. Believe in the team. Well, thanks for listening to the Two Solitude Soccer Podcast on Stitcher Radio with Dwayne Rollins and Kevin Laramay. Subscribe to the show on Stitcher Radio. Listen to the show on Stitcher Radio. Stitcher Radio, Stitcher Radio. Would you just please subscribe to the show on Stitcher Radio? Thank you very much for subscribing to the show. And now, back to the show on Stitcher Radio. Coming soon on Stitcher Radio.